Hello, and welcome to the Fountain Court podcast. In this series, we explore trends and issues across our key practice areas. I'm Leonora Sagan, a barrister specialising in civil fraud and business and regulatory crime. And today we're going to dive into the world of money laundering. In September 2020, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists publicised a leak of thousands of documents revealing around $2 trillion worth of illicit transactions. Most of these documents are suspicious activity reports, or SARs, filed by banks in respect of their own clients. They reveal that staggering sums of money connected with organised crime, terrorism, drugs and corruption move freely around the world, even though the relevant transactions have been reported as suspicious to law enforcement agencies. The documents come from the US Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and have been dubbed the FinCEN files, but they also show London to be at the very epicentre of many of these transactions. The leaks have led to an outcry against financial institutions who are accused of enabling money laundering on a global scale. But what about law enforcement agencies who know the relevant transactions have been flagged? Journalists and politicians alike have called for a radical overhaul of compliance systems as a result. Where are the world's anti-money laundering systems breaking down? With me to discuss this question and what the FinCEN leaks mean for the UK's legal landscape are Fountain Court's Robin Barclay QC, Neil Blundell of McFarlane's and Joe Taylor of K2 Intelligence. Robin Barclay QC specialises in civil and criminal fraud, bribery, money laundering and market abuse, as well as a wide range of banking and regulatory investigations. He is described in the Legal 500 as a class act with the brain of a commercial silk and the court craft of a criminal one. Neil Blundell is a solicitor advocate and the head of McFarlane's corporate crime and investigations practice. He's been involved in some of the highest profile bribery investigations into BAE, Rolls-Royce and Airbus, as well as benchmark rigging in the investigation into Barclays over the 2008 fundraising. He's an expert on building anti-fraud and anti-bribery compliance programs. Joe Taylor is managing director of K2 Intelligence, which provides investigative compliance and cyber defense services for clients. She has more than 20 years experience of working with banks in connection with their compliance and anti-money laundering efforts. And she is therefore uniquely placed to discuss FinCEN scandal and what it means for the banks implicated. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joe, Robin, Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me to discuss the FinCEN leaks. Hello. Hello. Hi there. I want to start by giving our listeners some context to the SAR regime. We know that the UK Financial Intelligence Unit receives more than 470,000 SARs a year, and they have been described as the lifeblood of law enforcement efforts. But what exactly are they? Robin, can you explain how they function and what purpose they are intended to serve? Sure. A SAR is a suspicious activity report, a piece of confidential information which alerts law enforcement authorities that certain client-customer activity is in some way suspicious and that a particular financial transaction or transactions might be linked to crime and involve the crime of money laundering under the Proceeds of Crime Act or terrorist financing under the Terrorism Act. In short, the function of a SAR is to provide law enforcement agencies with confidential intelligence about potential criminality and its financing. As to the purpose of a SAR, its purpose is twofold. A, to provide law enforcement with the opportunity to combat money laundering effectively by identifying, intervening, restraining and recovering the proceeds of crime. And secondly, 
to provide a submitter of a SAR with firstly the consent of the law enforcement agency to proceed with the transaction and secondly a defence to any subsequent allegation that they were a party to a money laundering or terrorist financing scheme. So what level of suspicion does a submitter need to have before filing one of these reports? The legal threshold for filing a SAR is very low. A person need only suspect that a transaction involves the proceeds of crime. The leading test in the UK comes from the Queen and De Silva in 2006. You have a reportable suspicion if you think there's a possibility, which is more than fanciful, that the relevant facts exist. And in De Silva, it was noted that a vague feeling of unease would not suffice. Deciding whether one has the requisite suspicion can often be difficult, with the result that a number of professional bodies have issued government-approved guidance to help members come to a conclusion and provide training on when and how to identify suspicious activity. And who can submit a SAR? In the main, individuals and businesses that handle high-value financial and property transactions, such as banks, insurers, trust and fiduciary business and accountants and lawyers. Because they deal in high-value property, they're exposed to exploitation by criminals who want to hide or clean the proceeds of crime, or to transfer it or invest it to make more money for themselves. Such individuals and businesses are known as the regulated sector. But it's not just the regulated sector who submits SARS. Anyone who knows or suspects that a transaction might involve money laundering or terrorist financing can submit one if they choose to do so. OK, so who receives the SAR once it's filed? In the UK, it is the UK Financial Intelligence Unit, as you've suggested, Leonora. This unit forms part of the National Crime Agency, and it holds a vast database of SARS, which it and other law enforcement agencies, both in the UK and overseas, to use, gather and share intelligence on potential money laundering and terrorist financing. So what information will the typical SAR contain? There are six broad types of information. Firstly, the name and contact details of the person submitting the SAR and the type of institution they work for, if they do work for one. Secondly, the date of the SAR. Thirdly, details of the subject involved in the suspicious transaction, such as the name and address of the customer or client and their business or occupation. Fourthly, details of any other subjects involved in the transaction, such as agents and counterparties. Fifthly, details of the actual transaction and any bank account used to carry it out. Sixthly, is the reason for the disclosure. In the first instance, this is divided into tick boxes of criminality, such as drugs or VAT and other frauds. And secondly, there is then a further box that permits the submitter to input around 1,500 words to describe the reason for the disclosure. Once a SAR is filed, can you walk us through how a regulator is supposed to respond and what the time limits look like? Under the old system, a SAR was submitted in hard copy. And although you can still do this, In general, they're now submitted online via the NCA website. Once submitted, the submitter will get a confirmation email from the NCA as to its receipt, and the submitter can print off the SAR. As part of the legal machinery in this area, banks and other businesses appoint someone as their nominated officer, or MLRO, Money Laundry Reporting Officer, and it is this person or persons whose responsibility it is to draft and submit a SAR. Once a SAR is received by the NCA, It is bound by a statutory timetable under the Proceeds of Crime Act as to its response, which has been carefully calibrated by Parliament in an attempt to balance 
the operational capacity and statutory responsibilities of, of the NCA on the one hand, and the contractual and other rights and duties of a bank, insurer or law firm who's submitting the SAR and th- to their customers and clients. Once the SAR is filed, what's next for the bank? Well, first, the NCA has seven working days to respond to the SAR and decide if it's going to give the bank its consent to proceed with a transaction or to refuse consent. Section 335, subsection 2 of POC provides that a person must be treated as having consent to proceed if they've heard nothing from the NCA. On the other hand, if they do hear from the MCA within seven days and consent is refused, the bank must potentially wait a further 31 calendar days from the date of the refusal for the NCA to investigate the matter and respond further. This second period is known as the moratorium period. And if, at the end of the 31 days, the bank has heard nothing from the NCA, it must again be treated as a matter of law as having consent to proceed under Section 335, Subsection 2. An important and relatively new qualification to these overriding rules is that the moratorium period of 31 days may be extended by court order. The NCA can make further applications to the court for further time, up to a maximum of 186 days from the end of the first 31-day period. If an application for an extension is refused, the moratorium period is extended for five days to permit the NCA to appeal the decision, and if it doesn't, consent is deemed to have been given. This regime sounds like it has the potential to cut across the rights of the bank's customers, and I have confidentiality in particular in mind. So how does the regime seek to square the circle between the bank's obligations on the one hand and the customer's contractual rights on the other? The disclosure of a transaction by a bank or law firm or others potentially intrudes into contractual, tortious and other duties owed to the subject of the SAR, particularly if they're customers or clients. Parliament has recognised this problem and again legislated for it through a number of legal protections to submitters known as protected and authorised disclosures under sections 337 and 8 of POCA. Under these rules, a SAR is not to be taken as a breach of any restriction on the disclosure owed by the bank to its customer or client, whether in tort or contract, no civil liability arises in respect of the SAR, provided it is made in good faith. Similarly, in certain instances, a disclosure of the SAR can be made within the same undertaking or group of companies. The disclosure of a SAR can be made between similar banks and credit institutions and law firms anywhere in the world if it's made to prevent a money laundering offence and the recipient operates in a similar anti-money laundering sphere as the UK banks. And it can also be made to a regulator such as the FCA or to a court hearing an application for an extension and to other businesses in a regulated sector if done in good faith and required by the NCA. Robin, you mentioned the moratorium period included in the regime. What, if anything, can the bank communicate to its client during that time? The bank is not allowed to talk about the fact it has submitted a SAR or flag them in any way to clients, if to do so is likely to prejudice any investigation by the NCA into the SAR. This is known as the tipping off offence. It's under Section 330A of um, POCA. The regime you've just described, and banks in particular, have come under fire for not doing more. Critics say SARS essentially inoculate banks against liability without actually preventing money laundering, and the call has come for banks to do more. Now, the criticism seems justified to some extent, given the examples we've seen of banks implicated in criminal activity, where those banks were already subject either to sanctions or to DPAs. But I want to ask you, 
Do you think the FinCEN leaks reveal inadequacies within the SAR system itself? Or does the problem lie elsewhere? I think it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that big banks are, as the FinCEN or Panorama documentary said, as guilty as the criminals uh, that they appear to have been serving and laundering funds for. However, any system is only as good as those who operate it. And whilst in the main, the reporting system, in my view, is effective, the FinCEN leaks highlights its ineffectiveness too. And given the eye-watering scale of those transactions, it's only right and important that the system be looked at fresh. But I think what is important here is to distinguish between the system of reporting, on the one hand, and then the effort of law enforcement in order to um, combat and respond to those reports on the other In relation to the former, I think the system as a whole is working effectively because I I know from practice that the banks particularly and law firms and other global businesses and other businesses in the regulated sector who typically have to file SARS take their responsibilities extremely seriously indeed and spend millions operating and introducing systems and controls to combat money laundering and terrorist financing. And that includes huge resources into the training of staff in order to advance that effort. So that all very much suggests that banks aren't deliberately turning a blind eye. So what's going on here? Assuming that banks know or suspect that a transaction involves the proceeds of crime and Farlasar, the banks have done everything they are legally required to do so. Seen in this way, the question therefore must be directed at the effectiveness, not of the reporting system, but of law enforcement, and of course the resources put into that effort by government. Robin, you mentioned distinguishing law enforcement from the reporting system itself, and I would add a third dimension, because some of the leak files reveal elementary failures even of KYC protocols. So I have in mind the example of a large bank that held accounts for Semyon Mogilevich, who the FBI describe as the most dangerous mobster in the world. Joe, many of your clients are banks. What do you think their response would be to the suggestion that it is they who should be doing more about money laundering? So as Robin mentioned, banks spend huge amounts of money on continuous improvement of the control environment and people resources dedicated to anti-financial crime. And in their statements in response to these leaks, most banks have highlighted that fact. None of the banks have commented on whether they think the SAR regime is too lax. But I think that most banks would consider that the SAR regime puts them firmly at the forefront of preventing financial crime within the international community and creates obligations for banks, which, as I've said, require significant technology and people investment. And it's worth noting that some European regulators have expectations that banks must process potential SARs very quickly from the initial alert stage through to filing in a matter of days. And this in itself is a very onerous requirement for banks. An interesting question is how much benefit law enforcement derived from suspicious activity reporting. A 2017 paper found that 80 to 90 percent of suspicious reporting is of no immediate value to active law enforcement investigations, according to interviews with past and present FIU heads. 
And I'd also mention in this regard that the proposed reform from FinCEN talked about regulatory amendments which would explicitly define an effective and reasonably designed AML program as one that provides a high degree of usefulness to government authorities, consistent with both the institution's own risk assessment and the risk communicated by the relevant authorities as national AML priorities. I want to focus on what you've just said about the information that the SARS contain, which as you've said, a lot of which is not very useful. But the truth is that it is incredibly sensitive. And I wonder whether there are any concerns that leaks of this sort could have a chilling effect on the bank's efforts to report transactions. A lot of compliance training that happens within banks references the newspaper test. And that encourages compliance officers and staff members to consider how something would look on the front page of a newspaper. And this is now playing out for real. I don't think this leak will deter banks from complying with their obligations to report suspicious transactions. But in my view, the effect will be that where banks file a SAR, they'll start to think very carefully about whether they want to maintain that client relationship. Many banks have multiple touch points with a client across various jurisdictions. And one of the challenges that banks face is to ensure that on a need-to-know basis, there's internal coordination such that if a bank files a SAR in one jurisdiction, the client's activity is looked at across the other jurisdictions to detect a similar pattern or other concerns which might warrant further SARs or potentially a full client exit. Turning to the other side of the coin, namely the bank's clients, and it is private clients and high net worth individuals in particular, who have been thrown into the spotlight following these leaks. Neil, can you talk us through just how damaging a leak like this can be for private clients? Well, many private clients go about their business in a law-abiding way, but by their very nature, use offshore banking arrangements or perhaps structures that are less understandable to the banks that they then operate through. And going back to what Robin Barclay said earlier about the De Silva test and when a bank is in a position where it knows or suspects criminality, and with that threshold being very, very low, and we know has to be more than fanciful, but very difficult for the banks to judge, you tend to see, and I have seen, both acting for banks and indeed for private individuals in this realm, that there's a defensive element to the submission of SARS. So in other words, the very nature of a client's banking arrangements and offshore structures may in fact lead to that submission of a SAR when in fact there isn't any grounded basis for it. And so in those circumstances, sure, it may be that the National Crime Agency or other bodies would look at the particular individual but there would be nothing for them to actually see, to go after, to freeze. But the very nature of the leak would suggest that individual is somehow involved in wide-scale money laundering or criminality. And that is extremely damaging for them. And as we've just heard as well from Joe, can even lead to certain banks deciding to exit their relationships with them. So pure speculation and unease by one bank 
could in fact, through these leaks, then lead to information which really impacts their ability to do business across the world. What are the key steps clients can take then to manage their exposure following something like this? Well, it can be very difficult because, as I've just alluded, the problem with most journalistic investigations and leaks is that one doesn't always know where the information is going to go. And so it's quite difficult in these circumstances for individuals to know what they're protecting themselves against. But presuming you have a law-abiding, high-net-worth individual who, by the nature of their relationships, has had SARS submitted, which indicate they may be involved in some form of money laundering, then, of course, they can go to those banks and make representations to risk committees and others when those issues surface. If there was something very profound in the SAR itself, which would suggest something over and above it, I don't know, receipt of corrupt payments or something like that, it would be possible for them to go to a regulator, I suppose, and place themselves before that regulator and say that the allegations as set out are untrue and be able to try and do it. But it's very difficult. I mean, it's like, you know, a needle in a haystack. Which agency in which country would be more interested in these type of arrangements? So there isn't an awful lot they can do other than, I suppose, react if something is brought to their attention or to their legal advisor's attention in a transaction on other things to justify it. The other issue, of course, is that, as we know, with Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers and so on, you know, the use of offshore structures and other things isn't in itself illegal. But we do have, you know, and we do hear constant chattering in the journalistic community about that being something which would suggest criminality. But sometimes a high net worth individual or private client doesn't want to set out their relationships with banks around the world. They are private. They wish to keep their business affairs as private as they can. So it can be very difficult for them to be able to do anything to mitigate these type of leaks. What do you foresee to be the immediate fallout from this leak over, say, the next 12 months? Now, the Times has recently reported, for example, that the leaks may result in a flurry of litigation. And I I noticed that you mentioned there that banks may seek to exit some relationships. Do you agree that we're going to see some litigation out of this? Well, obviously, at the, uh, you know, as I think it's been announced today in the US, we know that class action lawsuits have been started against HSBC and Standard Chartered. I think from the position of a private client or an individual, that there is the potential that through damaging SARS, they will lose business relationships, which will inevitably cost them an awful lot of money. I think public policy would dictate a case then bought against a bank for fulfilling its regulatory obligations. You know, it's going to be very unlikely a private client's going to succeed in something like that. But I think from the private client perspective, you know, many of them would probably, if they do suffer losses as a result, want to take legal advice, particularly legal advice as to whether there could be a claim of action against those who are submitting these SARs. Again, going back to Joe, who was discussing, you know, what the banks are doing in the main, they're trying to get and meet their regulatory requirements here. So, you know, they're in a really difficult position, just as a private client will be, 
in perhaps seeing and reading information that's been submitted by perhaps a trusted entity and one that they may have banked with for many years. So yes, there can be the loss of a banking relationship, both in terms of a risk committee of a bank deciding they no longer want that private client. But there could also be equally the situation where a private client of many years who spends an awful lot of money through the use of that bank decides to exit their relationship based upon actually, you know, a bank having to do what it feels is right following the De Silva test. (laughs) And there is, of course, also the prospect of massive investigations following this. Robin, I want to turn to you and the regulators here. The SFO has had a rough ride over the last year in particular, especially following the acquittal of the Barclays Three, a result achieved by Fountain's very own Richard Lissac QC with the assistance of a team of great legal minds, including yourself, Robin. But the SFO is also reported to be struggling to process evidence during the pandemic. So I want to ask you, how is the SFO going to manage the vast amount of information that is coming out of these leaks? Well, I think firstly, as SARS with confidential intelligence reports, I suspect that the UK agencies in public will condemn the leaks as, generally speaking, they like to investigate in secret for as long as they need to. And this may risk prejudicing investigations already underway by alerting those implicated in wrongdoing that a SAR has been filed that affects them. On the other hand, the leaks and publicity also serve to highlight and reinforce the need for governments to put more money behind law enforcement to combat money laundering if they mean to take it seriously. And so whilst in public, the SFO and maybe the NCA may condemn leaks of this nature, in private, they may be very happy indeed, because it may well push government to give them some more money so they can investigate things properly. Directly to your question about what I think that the SFO are going to do in relation to the management of this sort of vast amount of information. Well, in reality... I think it'll simply add to the intelligence it already knows or which is available to it through other regulators uh, and particularly through um, the NCA and the sharing of information gateways that exist between all the regulators in, in the UK and increasingly overseas. So I think generally it will be used as an intelligence tool first and foremost. And secondly, if there are any prosecutions that come out of this, I rather suspect that they may be few and far between uh, because I think that it is just one part of the law enforcement complexity that that goes into actually having sufficient evidence to charge anyone and to to bring a prosecution in the English courts. And whilst this, this may be intelligence, very useful intelligence, it's a whole different thing to actually turn it into admissible evidence. Could I add? something here as well, which is that the whole purpose of SR regime, both here and, and elsewhere in the world, is to ensure that information is brought before regulators who have the powers by statute to do something about it. And as Robin indicated before, that means the purpose of it ultimately is, yes, to start investigations, but to freeze accounts and to seize the proceeds of criminality. That's taking place. The problem with the SAR regime is that because of the way in which the threshold for suspicion is set and it's set so low, there are many, many more SARs that can ever be investigated and they're often done defensively. And so actually, what would the Serious Fraud Office do? Well, as Robin said, there's other 
methods by which they investigate. And so if through this source, the FinChen source, there's information that would support other things they're looking at or investigating, then it's something that might speed up something that they do. But in broad terms, there's so many, most of them will never be investigated. They have to use the um, particular computerized systems that they have to try and flush out information that is useful to them. And so in my view, it's not going to change very much unless you change the suspicion threshold and raise it in the future. If you raised it for there to be less SARS, but them to be more accurately driven in terms of suspicion, that may be more useful for law enforcement. But then that goes against the whole principle of the legislation, which is to flush out as much as possible and to bring as much as possible before the eyes of FinChen or the National Crime Agency or whatever it may be. And I think to, to just to add into that, my view is that looking through the lens of SARS and what to be done about them through sort of greater investigation and prosecution is fine. But for the reasons we've talked about, and particularly the difference in sort of the, the, the burden or standard of proof, we're looking at things through possibly the wrong lens. And actually, there are tools in the SFO's armory through a civil recovery order where the standard of proof is the civil standard and therefore lower than the criminal standard. And the time it takes to actually bring a case to trial as a consequence is significantly shorter. And the incentive for particularly corporations to settle, as we've seen through deferred prosecution agreements, and prior to DPAs coming in through the the few civil recovery orders that were made, there is a large incentive for corporations to settle them. And I think that if I were looking at this as a law enforcement agent, then I would be encouraging the SFO to make far greater use of its civil recovery orders, which it still has the power to do, rather than necessarily seeking DPAs or prosecutions. Robin, that's an excellent point. And and I also had in mind not only the DPA mechanism, but the civil recovery route, because it's also capable of generating some income for for the government and agencies. And we saw that that was one way in which uh, Lisa Osofsky recently defended the SFO's recent actions. I will also come back to what might be done to reform the SAR system in a little bit. But I want to turn now to the broader significance of these leaks for the UK in particular, because the documents reveal that London is at the very epicenter of these suspicious transactions. And this has led one US Treasury report to describe the UK as a higher risk jurisdiction for money laundering, comparing it to countries like Cyprus. I'd like to canvas your views on whether that's a fair characterization. Is the, is the UK turning into a haven for money laundering? Neil, why don't you go first? Well, um, yes. I mean, look, over the past 20 or 30 years, London's established itself as a major banking centre. During parts of that, it has been the preeminent banking centre for many corporates and individuals, particularly operating out of Russia and the former CIS countries and so on. So inevitably, it will have handled and dealt with a lot of quite intricate and complex transactions that, you know, have in part led to the legislation that's come in and to a desire by the British authorities to ensure that 
you know, it isn't seen as as the sort of money laundering capital of the main financial centres in the world. It's easy for individuals to say that from across the pond. But as Joe said, you know, there's been huge efforts in the banking world to, you know, ensure that what they're doing is operating cleanly. There's always going to be a challenge because fraudsters, by their very nature, will look for new ways in which to money launder funds around the world. And the banks and indeed the legislation has to keep up with that threat. But, you know, I come back to the same point, which is that, you know, they have to be allowed to do their job. And that means at points in time, they need to use the law that they have to allow them to do so. And that is why SARS has submitted. That is why the banks are allowed to continue on with transactions following the submission of a SAR, because there is an interest from the National Crime Agency to do anything about it. And so, yes, it's a difficult system. There'll always be flaws to it, but it is a system that's designed to flush out issues whilst at the same time allowing banks to do what they can do, which is, you know, act for customers and corporates. Neil, you make an interesting point about legislation having to keep up with developments, particularly in the fraud sphere. And I wonder whether Brexit, which is coming up at the end of December this year, is about to make that a lot harder. Much of UK law on money laundering and the attendant enforcement options is intertwined with EU law. So what can we expect? I think the question at the moment is, who knows? Because we don't know what the world's going to look like on the 1st of January. We don't know if, you know, looking at what's going on with the pandemic at the moment, with the way in which the economy is, we don't know, you know, whether this is a big game of poker going on, which will either succeed in some form of an extension to the transitionary period or indeed a trade deal. Who knows at the moment? But yeah, anything which diverts attention from it, where we have to concentrate on other issues can only lead to a vacuum in which fraudsters can more easily operate. And, you know, the pandemic is a good example of that. We'll see a lag going on at the moment, but, you know, perhaps when, when we look back in three or four years, we will see that actually it wasn't so much around the failing of a SAR regime. (laughs) That's a problem, but homeworking and other issues which have led to the ability to people to cross the line into criminality when they otherwise wouldn't. So I think there's a whole host of things that could surface through Brexit and through the pandemic, and we'll just have to see what is flushed out by it in due course. But yeah, I mean, it's got to be a risk if international law enforcement are unable to operate as effectively with their continental counterparts, then that's going to be an issue. And around money laundering, whether we have Brexit or not, there has to be real international impetus to try and deal with it and solve it. Because if there isn't, then you can bank on it. You know, people will be looking for loopholes by which to money launder the proceeds of their criminality. And perhaps this is an opportunity, therefore, for reform, which we've mentioned a bit earlier. And as Joe said, FinCEN has already announced that it will be soliciting public comment on how to reform its AML systems. We've heard also from the UK government that it plans to reform Companies House. But as yet, nothing has been said about the SAR regime itself. Mel Stride, the chair of the Treasury Committee, has written to the FCA and HMRC, among others, seeking answers to several questions about potential reform. Joe and Neil, you both have a lot of experience in building anti-fraud, AML and compliance programs. So stepping back to the theme of reform, is it the SAR regime, do you think, that needs reform? Is it something else? And if so, what would your top tips be? 
So I refer back to the June 2019 report from the Law Commission, which made three very sensible recommendations in my view, or to put it another way, there were many recommendations and three of them I would highlight in particular. And the first was to produce better guidances for businesses in the regulated sector, focusing on the test for suspicion, which goes to Neil's point about the bar being very low and better guidance being needed for the industry. The second was to create an advisory board that would draft guidance on the SAR regime and monitor its effectiveness and advise on improvements which can be made. And that advisory board would be a public-private partnership reflecting the trend to a cross-sector approach, which we already see across money laundering and terrorist financing. And thirdly, that the Proceeds of Crime Act is amended to create an exemption to allow criminal property to be ring-fenced by credit and financial institutions. And that would allow banks to take a more proportionate response, whereby they can prohibit use of the allegedly illicit funds, but still provide access to money which is seen as legitimate. This is one of several very consequential leaks we've seen in recent years, including the Panama and Paradise paper leaks. As we're getting to the end of the podcast, I want to look for some silver linings in all of this. Are there any? Uh, Are these leaks acting as checks on the system? What are the positive takeaways when something like this happens? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the, the Panama Papers leak had a profound impact on governments around the world in relation to trust law, tax evasion, the rules relating particularly to KYC, Know Your Customer. And I think as we've discussed already here, uh, as highlighted in the Panorama programme, it is the KYC area in particular that is the sort of Achilles heel of the system. Investigations led to the recovery of, I think I read the other day, in excess of a billion US dollars as a result of the Panama Papers leak. And in the UK, the introduction of attempts to create a a register of beneficial owners of overseas companies. For me, if there are two things that this latest leak will reinforce, it's firstly the drive for such a register because KYC is such an important cog in the drive to combat money laundering. And secondly, for banks to spend more on KYC in order to decide whether or not to file a SAR, assuming and applying the De Silva test that we've been talking about throughout the programme. After that, there may be more investigations, but I suspect very few prosecutions unless more money is put into the law enforcement effort. I think we had the, um, although it seems a long time ago because it was just ahead of the referendum, Brexit referendum in 2016, but we did have the anti-corruption summit in London. We can remember all sorts of issues emanated from that, most notably I think some off-the-cuff comments from David Cameron at the time about the corrupt nature of Kenya and Nigeria, if I remember correctly, which led to the retort from them, much like we've just heard from the States, that London was the crime bed. We know there have been that through these leaks and through investigative journalists, there's been kleptocracy tours in London in which they have taken law enforcement and journalists around on a bus showing them alleged criminal property of oligarchs and others in London, looking at houses in particular. So anything that places on the agenda what it's really about, which is tackling organised crime and 
the use of the banking system to flush those proceeds from organised crime through, whether it's prostitution, drug running, whatever it may be. But there has to be a proportionate response because, as I said before, many, many entities and individuals use perfectly legally offshore structures and other setups that can lead to low threshold suspicion tests being met in the banks. And perhaps, and it's trying to work, isn't it, a way through by which the banks themselves can protect themselves from being the conduit for money laundering and at the same time protecting themselves when they're trying to do transactions with this sort of crazy system we have at the moment where because they're defensive by nature, you know, you're always going to advise a client to submit a SAR if they have any doubts at all. I mean, you have money laundering reporting officers who have personal criminal liability if they get it wrong. And so we have to have some sympathy for the banks and the way in which they do it. And at the same time, government and governments acting together worldwide need to work out better ways to monitor criminals and to target criminals rather than target law-abiding companies and individuals. Because if you get that right and get the right people being investigated, then they can seize their funds and stop the criminality and the proceeds of crime, rather than cause all of this headache for others. Well, we will watch this space keenly to see whether any good comes of the FinCEN leaks, and in particular, whether any of the proposed reforms are implemented, even if it is just, as Robin highlighted, additional funding for law enforcement agencies, no doubt that would be very welcome aid in the fight against money laundering. Now, before I let you go, I've been asked to ask one final question which we will be asking all of our guests on the Fountain Court podcast. And here it is. If you hadn't chosen to work in the legal profession, what career would you have pursued? Just thinking back to my childhood days where I was an equity-holding child actor and formed in the Royal Shakespeare Company and at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, it would almost certainly be an actor. For some reason, I got distracted by uh, reading a law degree and decided to go another Such week. a shame. What a, what a loss to the world of acting and Shakespeare. <laughs> what about you, Joe? A fortunate loss. <laughs> well, I never had any credentials like Neil for my chosen alternative career. I don't know if I was ever very good, but I would have liked to have been an artist. I really liked to draw and paint. So both of you in the arts then. Indeed. What about you, Robin? Well, carrying on that theme, I think I would... Um, most definitely have worked in music business. And I would have, um, I think I would have been a sound engineer, actually, working very late nights, working with very interesting people and um, recording every single instrument on the planet that I could have got my microphone in front of. But as it is, you've got the late nights and the interesting people, at least. <laughs> uh, and I, I, yeah, I've certainly got the interesting people. Brilliant. Well, thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on the FinCEN scandal. Join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.